Broadcasting from Youngstown, Ohio, this is the MV Red Podcast, the show where we talk about news and politics impacting the Mahoning Valley, the state of Ohio, and the USA. If you want to subscribe to our podcast, find us on your favorite podcast streaming app or visit our website, www.mvred.com. If you want to share your opinion with us, please email info at mvred.com, as we would love to hear from you. Now, let's get things started. Here are your hosts, Michael Metzinger and Dane Davis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of the MV Red podcast. My name is Michael Metzinger. Joining me once again is my co-host, Dane Davis. We want to thank you for tuning in. To the podcast today. So on today's episode, we have a lot to talk about. And rather than focus on national politics, we're going to focus a little bit on some local and state issues. We're going to first talk about Governor Mike DeWine of the state of Ohio. We'll talk about how he has been doing eight months into his first term as governor. We'll kind of give him a grade on that on his uh, first term. Then we're going to talk about the, the state of Ohio politically. It is a state that seems to be trending more Republican in the last few election cycles, and we'll discuss whether we think that will continue as we approach the 2020 elections next year. Then on a local level, we're going to talk about the city of Youngstown being ordered by Ohio State Auditor Keith Faber to repay $3.1 million of water, wastewater, and sewage money that the city used for some economic development projects. And then lastly, we'll touch on an issue that kind of came to the forefront a few weeks ago in a Vindicator article. Uh, the Mahoning County auditor, I believe his auditor, Ralph Meachin, had mentioned the possibility maybe it's time for some school districts locally to work towards co- consolidation or at least have that discussion start up. So, that is the four main things we're going to talk about today. We might throw a couple other things in there as well, but uh, I want to begin by asking, Dane, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing really well. Today's a great day. Uh, we're recording on a Wednesday. I think Wednesdays are chronically um, underrated. Uh, I think the worst day of the week is not Monday, but Tuesday. On a Tuesday, you know, everybody has high expectations for you. On a Monday, everybody's tired. Your boss is tired. You know, so nobody really expects anything out of you. Um, Tuesday's the worst day because that's when expectations ramp up. Wednesday, people kind of let you do things on your own. And then, um, so it's a pretty good day. Thursday is definitely the best day of the week. So I enjoy Thursdays. Yeah, Thursdays are just hugely underrated. Um, Fridays, everybody's trying to hurry up and get stuff done before the weekends. But uh, Thursday, very comfy. And Wednesday's very comfy. So I'm having a good time. Oh, good. Good to hear. So let's let's start talking about Governor Mike DeWine, state of Ohio. He's, uh, I believe, he's, I, I, I view him more as a career politician. I think he's seventy two years old. He's the previous, or he previously served as a U.S. senator in the state of Ohio. Was he also an attorney general at one point in the state? No, I'm going to Wikipedia this. He was the attorney general. Um, under Kasich, it looks like, uh, he was, he's the governor. He was the former Senator from 95 to 2007. He was Lieutenant Governor under Voinovich. He was a house of rep member, the U S house of representatives. 
a member of the Ohio Senate and a prosecutor of Greene County. So he's had a long career. Definitely a career politician, nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I guess let, let's talk about how he's doing. I, uh, from my perspective, what's interesting, and we'll talk about it in the next segment in terms of Ohio politically, but the state legislature in Ohio is dominated by Republicans. And it seems as though yeah, I, I view Mike DeWine as he, he's a smart politician. He knows exactly what to say. He he's never he never really gets himself in any hot water with what he says, and it seems as though at times, despite having a full blown Republican state legislature, he 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 has worked, I guess, in some ways more towards the middle. He's not to, to me. He doesn't seem way out there on the right. Um, he, I, I don't know your thoughts on that, and I guess I have a couple examples, but. Uh, I want to hear what you have to say. So DeWine's a very fascinating figure to me, especially this uh, governor's term. The, the, the man is 72 years old, and I think that that's an extremely relevant fact because uh, if he were to serve two consecutive four terms, right, he would be 80 years old by the time he's done with that, or almost 80. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very clear within the Republicans, he was facing a contested primary, and um, John Hughes said, I think basically made an agreement with DeWine whereby DeWine would serve one term and then John Husted would run and get the party blessing after that. Um, John Husted, of course, is the lieutenant governor uh, for the state of Ohio. So viewed through this context and viewed through this light, DeWine is a one-term governor. And I, I think if you understand that and you keep that in mind, a lot of his actions make sense. I, I think... Um, his goal was just to kind of do a bunch of unpopular moves that perhaps need done. I think that's arguable, but I'm just saying it from his perspective to pass forward a bunch of unpopular moves and then hand it off to another Republican. I think he, he views himself more as a caretaker um, governor and uh, we can go more in depth into the various policies, but I think that's the best way to understand DeWine. No, that, that, those are good points. A couple of issues. I, I, I identified where maybe he's going against the grain in terms of a traditional Republican. One issue that came up back when the budget was being passed, or maybe maybe slightly before that, was the issue of the gas tax and raising the gas tax. I think Governor DeWine had proposed he would have liked to have seen it go up like something like 17 or 18 cents a gallon. I think when it was all said and done, it ended up coming in at less than a gallon. Do you and is it is it ten cents? Yeah. So so ten cents a gallon. Um, but you know who's pushing that? When I know a lot of Republicans were against any sort of tax increase, uh, despite the fact the state tax rates. I know the 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 bottom two brackets went away, and there was a re- reduction in overall state income tax rates, which I guess in theory could offset that. Um, but that's one issue in in the wake of the shootings in, in Dayton and down in El Paso. I know he's right now looking at some some legislation on the gun and gun front, mental health front. And then lastly, I know not that I'm slightly against this because I'm, I'm not a, I don't smoke or anything like that. But he did push for raising the tobacco age in the state of Ohio, and it's now 21 years of age. But maybe some. Some issues that aren't huge critical issues, but where he took the approach 
um, maybe more on to the middle. So I, I think that let me let me introduce this idea of understanding DeWine. So the first idea is that he's a one-term governor, and he's implementing stuff that he knows might be unpopular, but just things that he feels needs to on the state level. The other thing is the best way to understand him ideologically is really not as a conservative, nor as a liberal, nor even as a centrist, but I think as a Christian Democrat. So what's a Christian Democrat, right? Like in, in Europe, there were a, there's a widespread historical tradition of what they call Christian Democratic parties, where they were like right-wing parties who were what we would call liberal in economics, but really is more interventionist on economics. So they supported the welfare state. They supported higher taxes, and not to the same extent as the socialists, but, you know, at a higher level. And then they were also more conservative on morality. And um, it's kind of different from the U.S. Republican Party, which was always very right-wing on economics and right-wing on morality. So I think Mike DeWine is kind of like that classic um, Christian Democrat politician in Europe. And it transported to the U.S. Like, so give me, I'll give you two examples, right? Raising the gas tax. That defied the conservative base in terms of it was a tax increase. Um, but at the same time, he signed the six-week heart, heartbeat bill abortion ban, which is another important issue uh, that you forgot to mention, which was very controversial earlier in the year. Mm-hmm. And then he also raised the um, smoking tax or the smoking age to 821. So these are like socially conservative measures. But on guns, he's a little bit more liberal on guns in the sense of more left-wing on guns, more favor of guns restrictions. On spending, he, he's very, very loose with spending. Uh, the, the budget has hit a huge increase in spending in Ohio. Um, he proposed a lot of various spending initiatives when he was running for governor, like uh, mental health care services, increasing that by millions of dollars, early childhood education, and early childhood, they call them wraparound services, at schools, he wanted to raise that by several million, several hundred million dollars, I think. So he's a big spender, but also conservative on these social issues, which alienates um, a fair amount of people, I would say. Yeah. And on the, the gun issue, I, I wanted to confirm this, but I think I did. Back when he was in the Senate, he had supported some background checks for gun shows and at one point in time he actually had earned an f rating from the nra and apparently by 2014 after some of his actions maybe as attorney general it did improve to a c rating but again a traditional right-wing republican would be solidly probably in the a category for the nra and for a republican to get an f rating says a lot about where he stands on that particular issue. Right. And, and again, this just goes to, you can't really view DeWine as a social conservative or an economic conservative or as a conservative. You can't define him as a centrist. He's kind of a unique breed of politician. Um, I think he's pretty pragmatic too. I mean, he's willing to do what he feels is necessary uh, that he's done. Now, my personal opinion, I've tried to withhold my personal opinion on all these issues. I'm just trying to describe perspective of DeWine, but that's that's another issue. Yeah, and what's interesting to me is, and maybe this kind of segue into the next topic, was how the state of Ohio is currently set up. So in the Ohio House, the Republicans have 61 seats, the Democrats have 38. And then in the Ohio Senate, the Republicans have 24 seats, the Democrats have only nine. And despite that, the 
budget that was just passed, I think it was in July, passed the Ohio House 75 to 17 and the Ohio Senate 29 to 1. So despite the Republicans having complete control of the state legislature, I found it interesting to see how much bipartisan support there was for a budget that um, – in some respects, Governor DeWine championed some, you know, some components of it. Um, but I, I found that to be ra- rather remarkable in this day and age with what you see in Washington compared to what you see in the state house in Columbus. Yeah, and so a couple of points on that. One is they the Republicans massively increased spending. So uh, let me let me back up a bit. The Ohio coffers are flush with cash. Ohio's pulling in more money now. I think than it ever has in history, and they're they're running a surplus. So the question is, like, what do they do with all the money? Um, obviously, we're at the top of an economic cycle, so the economy's doing very well. Government revenues go up, so it, everybody, you know, the conservative wing of the Republican Party wanted to cut taxes. The Dewine wing wanted to cut taxes and increase spending, and the Democrats wanted to increase spending. So as you can imagine, the Dewine wing. Being in the middle, they got a little bit of tax cuts, a little bit of spending increases, and it was enough to keep everybody happy. The other point that I think is crucial for understanding Ohio politics is that there is a huge divide between the Ohio House and the Ohio Senate. The Senate being far more conservative than the House. Larry Householder is the Speaker of the Ohio House of Representatives, but he was he's a Republican. He's, I think he was in the position before, but he was appointed over the votes of his own party. So he won a minority of the votes within his party, but he made a deal with the Democrats, and that's how he was appointed Speaker. So the Democrats all voted for him, a minority of Republicans voted for him, and a plurality of Republicans voted for um, a far more conservative guy. So, you know, that's how they've been able to govern. And the other point that should be mentioned is uh, the fact that the Ohio budget was delayed for a while. Yep. There was a lot of controversy over that. Even though it got all the votes at the end of the day, there were a lot of delays getting up to this point. Was it 17 days? I know they extended it for a short period of time, but I thought maybe it was a 17-day delay. I think so. I think it was 17. I think that sounds Because I was just through work. I was following it pretty closely on the tax front to see what was going to happen. There is – just to kind of provide some context, there's a this law passed. I think it would have been around Governor Kasich's probably in 2013 or 2014. It's called the Ohio Small Business Deduction, which allows – business owners in the state to exclude the first $250,000 of business in tax within the state of Ohio. And that was a point of contention between the Ohio House and the Ohio Senate. Uh, I want to say the Ohio – one of the two wanted to reduce that from $250,000 down to maybe $100,000. And then another point of – contention was this idea of anything in excess of the 250000 isn't taxed at the traditional Ohio income tax rate. It's taxed at a flat 3%. And there were some members of the legislature arguing that this shouldn't be at 3%. They should be paying it at the normal income tax rates. So that was uh, an interesting development. In the end, they ended up going with the status quo it remained at 250000 and then any income in excess of that remains at 3%. But uh, the CPA and me was watching that very, very closely to see what would happen. Again, you would think with the Republicans having complete control, that wasn't going to be an issue. But it ended up being one of the biggest points of contention between 
the state house and state yeah, senate. Yeah, the other thing to mention on the tax front is I think that they, they did lower the income taxes, right? Yes, they did, and they and they eliminated the two lowest brackets. So I want to say the first like twenty two thousand. Boy, I hope I'm not wrong on this. Being I'm a CPA, I'd have to research a little bit more closely. But I want to say the first twenty two thousand of income now is not taxed within the state, and then they reduced the the rates by maybe ten percent, something like that, from what they were previously. I'll confirm that while while you so follow the, up on that. The, the other point here is I think that the Ohio Senate. Um, they were more in favor of lower tax rates and broadening the base. So you eliminate various deductions, you have lower rates overall, but more people pay at a lower rate, right? You can't exempt various income streams. Whereas the Ohio House was more in favor of higher exemptions and more exemptions, but higher rates as well. Um, so, you mm-hmm. know, like a 10% tax, but you can deduct, and this is just hypothetical, you can deduct more money from that 10%. If you're building a business, if you're doing, you know, investing in manufacturing or something like that, whereas the Senate wanted, you know, a lower 5%, but you don't have as many deductions. So it was a difference in philosophies as well. Yeah, and I just did confirm I was I was accurate. It was, it's 20, the first $21,750 of income now. For any Ohio taxpayer is not going to be taxed. So that is a change from before when starting at 10800 that's when you would start paying tax um, at just shy of 2%. So now the first 22000 or so is not taxed within the state of Ohio. Another thing was, and maybe it was a compromise regarding the Ohio small business deduction. Now attorneys and lobbyists are excluded from that. Whereas before they would be able, even if they're a business owner, they would be able to take that deduction. So now uh, perhaps it was some sort of compromise they agreed to between the administration and and the House and the Senate. But that was something that was passed at the last minute in the bill because I remember following it very closely. And that was not brought up until late in the game. So now attorneys and lobbyists are excluded from that deduction. Which is kind of sad, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a kind diplomatic word for that development. <laughs> the people in our society that need the most help are surely lawyers and uh, lobbyists. Correct. And it is encouraging. I think one, one interesting thing was uh, – and I talked with some different people at work who definitely lean to the right and who were against this idea of a gas tax increase. And where I kind of look at it from the perspective of at least that money is now earmarked towards improvements to our infrastructure, which in this state is just awful. Um, before, if we would rely on the general fund, you don't know what the next administration is going to look like, where they're going to want to allocate funding for on the transportation side. So at least from that perspective, you're going to have money earmarked moving forward for those purposes. Let's just hope that in the long run, they're not cutting, slashing the transportation budget and in five, ten years, they're going to look to increase the gas tax. But think, if you increase gas tax, who's that going to hit the worst? The lowest income people. So at least at the very least, um, the first $22,000 of income in the state is not going to be taxed, which helps the the poor uh, poorer people in the state who would be hit with this tax increase so the let's, most. So let's actually get into a bit of a discussion here because on the gas tax, tax issue, I – I'm a kind of open-minded guy, so I see both sides of it, but I'm against it, right? So 
I'm not an ideological libertarian. I recognize that the government has a role to play in society. And in the most basic government functions, building roads, right? Building bridges, building public infrastructure that we all use. So I have no objections to the government raising, you know, taxing us to pay for roads. And it makes logical sense that people who use gasoline, they're using a vehicle, the vehicle uses the roads, they should pay. Um, and I, I think it's fair that they lowered the income tax for the lowest tax brackets in exchange for raising the gas sales tax. So I'm, I'm with it all so far. But I kind of think that there was this false crisis created. And I think it was a false crisis because the roads in Ohio are not that bad. And this is a very controversial point, but but let me... Have you been to Mahoning County? This is where I'm going to go with that. I don't think Ohio has a bad roads problem. I think regions within Ohio have bad road problems. Okay, And I think that the problem comes down to the spending and the governance of local governments and county governments. And this is a big bugaboo of mine. So I don't think – I mean, okay, you're right. Raising more money via the gas tax and spending it. It's not going to hurt anything, right? But at the end of the day, I think it's kind of a false notion to say, well, we have bad roads because we don't spend enough money. That's completely incorrect. Come to Geauga County where I live. The roads are fantastic. Go to various areas around Cleveland. The roads are great. Go to Ashtabula County. They have fine roads, okay? Various areas of Trumbull County. Well, I, I want to exclude Trumbull County. Portage County has okay roads. <laughs> has okay roads the roads are the local governments and in our area and this might be a good segue to the next topic mahoning and trumbull county have deplorable roads because the local governments there are horrible i don't think anybody can look at mahoning or trumbull county and say these are well-governed areas they're not they're they're the most poorly governed areas they make third world countries look like model governance cities or countries or that Okay, the problem, in my opinion, is we had too much local corruption. Money that should have been invested in the roads was padding people's pockets or somebody's brother-in-law, right? And then, as a result, we've accumulated a lot of depreciation. You, as an accountant, should love that concept. We've accumulated a lot of capital depreciation on our road system, and now we're scrambling to rebuild all these roads where we should have been investing in them over the last 30 years. So that's my big theory. No. Uh, you're 100% right that it's – to me, it's more of it – it boils down to various counties and then the local municipalities because the actual state routes across the Mahoney County are fine. I live right off of Lockwood in Boardman, and it's as smooth as could be, and, I, and they're constantly working on, on Route 224 in Boardman, keeping it – being it's the busiest thoroughfare in the entire county. They're constantly working at upgrading that. So – when it comes to state roads, they're in good shape. It's just if you go, there are certain roads in this, in Mahoning County that have been awful for so many years, and they continue to go where there's just it just seems like they don't care. They, I understand maybe they don't have the money, but it again comes down to mismanagement of funds. It's it's disappointing for sure. I'm not sure if this gas tax alone will be the issue or, or the, the savior and address the problem completely. I feel as though around here it won't. There's going to be a push. There was a push actually right before the gas tax was increased to add a $5 license fee increase in Mahoney County to help 
fixed some of the problem. But again, it, it does boil down to the fact that there is a mismanagement at the local level with our funds. And if parts of the state of Ohio can make it work, why can't the local counties make it work? Right. And so here's here's my, my big thing, right? So again, money is going to be earmarked for roads. I don't think we needed to raise the gas tax. I, I wish we could have found the funding other places. I think that instead of spending more money on wrapping around arguable effectiveness, we could have spent that money. the gas tax now that it's a done deal uh okay as long as it goes to roads it's not the worst case thing but i think it's a false message that ohio has bad roads because we don't spend enough money and we don't have high enough taxes and as republicans or as conservatives that's a really really bad argument to make and dewine kind of uh legitimize that argument mahoning county has bad roads because for years People were getting kickbacks. They were not investing in the infrastructure, and now it's all rotted all at once. And now it's like, yeah, I'm sure the current tax level is not sufficient to support the roads in Mahoney and Trumbull County because they didn't invest over the last 30 years. right? They, they didn't do any investment. They were investing in the Oak Hill Renaissance Center or other stupid ideas, um, downtown development in Youngstown instead of building roads. So that, that's my big bugaboo. I... I, I Drive around Ohio. I drive around for my job. I drive around the state. Our roads are fine. Come drive in Indiana and Pennsylvania. Both of those states, Pennsylvania in particular, has a higher gas tax. The roads there are horrible in Pennsylvania. The roads in Indiana suck too. Ohio has pretty darn good roads, and you know we had one of the lower gas taxes. You are correct. One thing I would always look at when the gas prices would go up. There would be, I think it's gasbuddy.com. There's a gas price heat map where you can look at, by color, which parts of the state have cheaper gas compared to other parts. And what's always interesting is right along the Ohio PA border, how much darker it would be. Red would be more expensive and yellow and green would be less expensive. How, how many The yellows and greens along Mahoning, Trumbull, Columbiana counties, and then you just flip over to Beaver, Lawrence, Mercer counties, and PA, and you see a, a substantial increase in the price of gas because of that gas tax issue. Um, so you know it'll be interesting to see what transpires, but I would not be surprised, although they tabled it for now, if in Mahoning County you do see that effort to put a $5 license plate fee back on here in due time. But it's it's my hope now that it has passed local municipalities use this money properly and improve the roads, especially in the Mahoney Valley. You there? You there? Sorry. So we shall see. Oh, sorry. No, yeah, I'm still here. Um, thought it, thought it cut out. Um, okay. Anyways. Yeah, no, agreed. Agreed. We'll see. But I, I think that that was an unnecessary effort. Uh, they wine wastes a lot of political capital on something that didn't need to be done, but Fair point. Before we move on to the local topics, I did want to touch on the state of Ohio. So like I had mentioned previously, House, Senate, overwhelmingly Republican. All the major state offices are occupied by the by Republicans. And outside of, a, I think, a couple Supreme Court seats that are nonpartisan when you go to the ballot and U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown, the Democrats are not in good shape when it comes to 
things at the state level. However, it is worth mentioning, again, President Obama did win the state twice. And um, they have and, – and despite the shift maybe towards the right, Sherrod Brown – did win re-election, despite I think he he did have a weak challenger in in in, in Renacy, but I don't know if it's quite there yet in terms of saying it's maybe a slightly red state. I don't think we'll know until twenty twenty for sure. I um I think so. The other yeah, this is a good topic. Why is Ohio a red state, and why has it gone redder? Um and. I, I think that it is the most red state of the swing states, but it's not yet a firmly red state. I mean, don't forget Indiana is a red state, and they voted for Obama in 2008, um, thanks to the turnout in, in Gary, Indiana. They went back to Romney in 2012. But um, I think, yeah, I think Ohio is certainly a redder state than a Michigan, a Wisconsin, a Minnesota, um, Illinois, even Pennsylvania, it's definitely redder than all those states. It's not yet to the level of Indiana, but I think it's it's rapidly trending there. The question is, like, why? Why is it going that way? I think it's an aging population, number one. Like, the population is getting older. It's not as young and dynamic. Um, I think the population is whiter than average. Whites, on average, vote Republican. Uh, so I think, you know, it hasn't experienced the demographic shifts that other areas have. Um, and I also think that the big blue areas are becoming more rural. So if you look at somewhere like the Youngstown area, you know, 50 years ago, you would think of that as an urban area and it would vote like an urban area. Well, because of population losses, I think you can increasingly look at the Youngstown area as a rural area. Um, drive through Youngstown and it seems kind of like it doesn't feel like a city. It seems like a semi-rural environment. Um, the suburbs are kind of the same way. They're suburbs, but they're kind of like a they're they're not an urban suburb, right? They they're they're a little more sleepy, um, and so that's a blue area that is trending redder because it's becoming more rural. Uh, the same is true for like an area like Toledo and some of the other blue places around the state. So you know the Democrats still have Cleveland, they have downtown Columbus, they have downtown Cincinnati, um, but they're losing Toledo and Youngstown, and that is just enough to kind of tip it in the Republicans' favor quite strongly. Yeah. I mean, looking back previously, Democrats would get 60 to maybe 62, 63 percent of the vote in presidential and statewide elections in Mahoning County. And and just think back over the past 10 years, Governor Kasich, I believe, won in Mahoning County in 2014, albeit against a very, very weak challenger. I think it was Ed Fitzgerald. Rob yeah. Portman has won Mahoning in Trumbull County as well. A number of the lower state offices have – the Republicans in those offices have been victorious. And then on a local level, we touched on it in, in another episode, Don Manning, state house in Mahoning County, and in uh, the state senate, Michael Ruley, who I think is doing an outstanding job. Um, we'll have to talk with, about him in a future episode, but uh, I think you make up you you make some good points about the population shift and, and and the overall. Yeah, you can't compare a Youngstown anymore to a Cleveland or a Pittsburgh. Not that you necessarily could before, but it would be like that second tier 
uh, a slew of votes, you know, a, a nice banking of votes would occur for the Democrats in those counties. And now anymore in the last 10 years, it just, it hasn't happened as much. And if a dark blue County like Mahoning and Trumbull County are now becoming more competitive, the Democrats are struggling to make up votes elsewhere. And that's where it'll be interesting in 2020 to see what happens. Yeah. I think it might come down to who the Democrats have as their candidate. Um, but if, if Donald Trump has success once again, and it's close in Mahoning and Trumbull counties and, and, and up in Toledo, it's definitely going to be tough moving forward. Another state you can kind of look at from the flip side would be Virginia, the demographic shifts there, a state that was once reliably Republican is definitely trending more to the left, more Democrat now. A lot of that has to do with the population around Washington, D.C., moving into those northern Virginia counties. Um, but, you know, one state demographically more diverse has gone more Democrat. And then a state, like you said, with Ohio, older in age, more white trending more Republican. Yeah. Um, that's absolutely right. Like Virginia has, has been flooded with, you know, putting aside the, the ethnic demographics and their voting patterns, look at within the white population. Um, the Republicans used to have a complete lock on college educated whites, whereas the Democrats were the party of like uh, non-college educated whites, right? The blue collar voters versus the white collar voters to oversimplify things. Increasingly, Democrats are doing well with the college-educated white crowd, which is why they're winning in states like um, Colorado, uh, Virginia, whereas Republicans are increasing dramatically their margins in non-college-educated whites, which is why they're far more competitive in states like Michigan and Ohio and and Pennsylvania. And Trump has kind of accelerated this trend. So Ohio is a state that I would say has fewer college graduates on a per capita basis or on a total share basis than a state like Colorado or Virginia. It's naturally going to go more towards the Republicans. Yeah, good points. So 2020 will tell us a lot about the future of Ohio, but I think if Donald Trump has success, it's definitely going to be a tougher state for the Democrats moving forward just because they have struggled so much on a statewide level in the state elections, and there's just really not many big names on the Democratic side within the state, the least that I could think of. Um, maybe there's that's a, What are your thoughts? Oh, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, no. Michael, but that's the point. It's like, politics is like a farm team, right? Like you need a farm system to get developed talent, and you need, you need good state reps and good state senators so that you get good U.S. reps so you can get good senators and good governors. And the Democrats' farm team has been destroyed most of all. Um, they've lost completely on the local level, and they don't have a lot of talent. Yeah, I didn't mean to take your thunder. No. Story. That was an point. I mean, it's it's telling when Republicans have 61, of, 61 seats in the House, 24 seats in the Senate. Democrats combined between those two only have 47 seats. They're, you bring up a great point. Their crop is weak, and, and unless there's some – some big shift, which I don't see happening because think of Ohio, think of the 2016 map and the breakdown of the state, just geographically speaking, 
the areas of blue were in such small pockets and so much of the state was so red. And I understand for U.S. Con- congressional seats, it's, it needs to be allocated more um, by population. But like when you're allocating a population base that's so red across the state geographically, it's going to be the tough for the Democrats to make up ground there. And I know locally in, 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 in the Mahoning Valley, there might be four or five state rep seats, but um, just to have one flip is, is quite remarkable. And it definitely shows that there is some weakness for the Democrats moving forward here. Uh, unless something changes radically, which I don't really see happening anytime soon, um, it's going to be a tough state for them moving you know, forward. But I'm not 100% sure it's, 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 it's a lock moving forward for the no, Republicans. No, I don't think it's a lock, but I think you know the trend line is clear. It's like the stock market. It goes up and down, but either trends up or trends down. I think Ohio is clearly trending more and more red. I, I think there will be elections where Democrats win, but the overall trend, I think, is, is pretty clear. I think a good comparison is uh, California. California and the Republicans are virtually extinct because of demographic changes um, and the changes in the, who the party parties appeal to. But the Republicans in California lost their farm team, and that's really, really hurt them. They haven't been able to recruit top talent. The Democrats lost their farm team, and, you know, like, okay, before you vote for a governor, you want somebody with experience. And it's like, well, who do they have? If they only have, like, you know, 15 or 20 senators, and 10 of those guys are not even looking to run, they want to retire, another five are wacky, and then, like, your, your five left, you know, four don't want to run because of personal reasons. You're really tight on talent. I think that's the problem the Democrats find themselves in. Um, so I, the Republic, the MV Red prediction of 2006 when you first started this blog, it's coming true. It's coming true faster. And then somebody like Donald Trump, of all people, has helped accelerate the transformation and realignment. Uh, you know, it's funny how the world is. Yeah, and, and I know you mentioned it previously, but just listening to talk radio in general – and just hearing how many people say they were f- former Democrats now are Republicans. And a lot of them do say it because of Donald Trump, which I find to be fascinating. Um, but it's, it, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see moving forward what transpires. Um, I think 2020 will tell us a lot. But switching gears on a local side, so city of Youngstown – over, oh, I want to say probably the last seven, eight years, has made grants for economic development projects within the city. And the Ohio auditor, Keith Faber, who is a Republican, is stating or maybe making it a requirement that the city of Youngstown repay $3.1 million from their water, wastewater, and sanitation funds or from the general fund back to the water, wastewater, and sanitation funds where those grants were made. And the auditors trying to be reasonable here and saying you could pay that back over 15 years. However, the mayor of Youngstown, Jamal Tito Brown, has already come out and says, we're not going to make these payments. We believe we have legal authority, um, a legal basis to make these grants out of the water, wastewater, um, the sanitation funds that they use. And some projects I just want to mention that 
were recipients of these funds, there were the flats at WIC, which is a student housing project just outside uh, on the northern end of Youngstown State's campus, right next to Urson High School. Then the Erie Terminal Building and the WIC Tower, which are both in downtown Youngstown. Um, then there were also some renovations to the YMCA in downtown and another building called the Wells Building, which was redeveloped by Strollo Architects. So it's very interesting to me. So uh, putting my auditor hat on, they've been doing this. The city's been doing this since, let's see, I think, let me see here. June 2011, the city's former law director, Iris Guglicello, had authored an opinion stating that they would be able to use these water and wastewater funds to support economic development projects. So they've been using it since June of 2011. They've gone through annual audits with the state since those that that date and despite that now it becomes an issue so i want to hear your thoughts on this okay i have very strong opinions on this so for people not aware there's two separate entities right and you're the accountant so correct me as i'm wrong there's two separate entities there's the city of youngstown okay and then there's also the youngstown water department which is a completely separate legal entity is that right michael uh, I don't know if it's a hundred. That's a. It's a hundred percent accurate in terms of for their audit. It all gets reported under one lump audit report. It's how it works with governments, though. Is everything has to be categorized. It, it's called fund accounting. So you can't be transferring money from your water department to pay bills in your general fund. The money's coming in from your water department for your, whatever you're charging taxpayers for water. The expenses out of the water fund have to be exclusively for maintaining and, and any repairs you make to your water system. I'll confirm with what you're saying because I'm, I'm actually on the auditor's website right now. Um, it, it's two completely different sets of books. We could put okay, it that so way. Two separate books, and, and it has two revenue streams, right? So the city of Youngstown has its taxes that they levy. This The water money in the water department has money they collect on – selling people water, right? The levies on um, water sales, okay? The other important point is the suburbs are dependent upon Youngstown for water. So the city of Youngstown is obviously a very poor city, but it is rich in the water resource, which it uses to sell to the suburbs. The other point that is crucial is that the money that is dedicated, the money the people, not only in the city of Youngstown, but in the suburbs, pay in their water rates, which are very high, that money is dedicated to go to the water department and maintain the water department and the infrastructure, even though the, the city of Youngstown has adequate water supplies, the infrastructure needed to pump and treat and distribute that water is old. It's falling behind. And I think the EPA has mandated that they have to replace it to meet new standards. So there's a huge capital bill coming due to reinvest in the water infrastructure. Okay. So given all that, what does the city of Youngstown do? They do a crooked and illegal scheme to take money that was, should be for the water department, okay, that little old ladies pay into, that they struggle to meet their bills, they're on a fixed income, little old ladies and the poor and everybody, they have to pay in this, and then they take that money and they give it to well-connected and well-heeled local property developers, namely the Marquionas, to develop property. Right, And the idea is, well, this is going to spur water demand because it's going to develop local real estate. 
nonsense, total nonsense. The city of Youngstown can't even manage its own finances and its own limited responsibilities, and yet they're going to place some city and develop the economic sector of the city by you know rebuilding apartment buildings and stuff like that. It, it, the idea is absurd to me. It's crony capitalism. It's disgusting. And I think that the fact that the Ohio government gave them 15 years to pay that back is extremely generous in my mind because, in fact, they should pay it right away. But if not right away, two to three years. Five years would be extremely generous. Fifteen years, all they have to do is, what, $3.1 million? Is that what you said? Yes. So what's $3.1 million over 15 years? It's like, what, $200,000 a year? has to be repaid. The city of Youngstown just bought a brand new police, a brand new cruiser for the mayor to drive around in. They can spare $200,000 to properly give restitution to these monies. Um, so I, I think it's just, it's disgusting. And it just shows on the local level, Youngstown has the highest income tax. Now, I don't want to play the role of Mr. Supply Cider and that cutting taxes solves every problem. But if you have a 2.75% income tax in the city of Youngstown, school district that is failing, it's deplorable, roads that are deplorable, why would any human being, given the free choice, want to move in that city? Why? There's no reason. The city of government, the city of Youngstown is so mismanaged on a local level, they're pulling in tons of tax revenue, and they're spending it improperly, and it's, it's just sad. It's, it's really sad, and I, I think it's just a corrupt mess. So you might be surprised with my response here. So I, I, here's my thought on this. Again, the city has been under is gets annual audits from the state auditor each year, and I, I, I guess I'm more surprised that this has become an issue now. I don't know if you know, I, I'm not. I don't think Keith Faber cares about local politics or anything like that. I just think he thinks that this need this is wrong and it needs to be corrected. But then it goes back to why is it why was it not an issue previously? Ah, and I'm not sure if that question's been raised as of yet. So my thought is I think the city needs to hold out to pay this back. I think ultimately yes, they will have to pay this back. And I'm not arguing with what you're saying about who these grants were made out to. And obviously there's a huge corruption scandal going on related to that. I'm not going to get into all of that. So there's definitely on the surface, the optics look bad, especially with one of the recipients who is under indictment or um, is, gonna, is, is going to be in court probably within the next year or 18 months related to some corruption scandal. So, but but my thought is they 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 need to hold out until something needs to be determined. I don't know what sort of mediation is going to take place between the auditor and the city. The city believes it has legal basis to do so. I have not read this opinion that was authored um, by a previous city law director, so I don't want to get into that. But if the previous auditor of the state of Ohio allowed it. And now this one's not allowing it. I think at some point or another, maybe we'll see the state legislature get into get into the middle of this. I know the a few city council people, men and women, were stating that there might be something going through the state legislature about this very issue right now because other cities have seen what Youngstown has done in making these grants. 
and they want to do the same thing. So I, I think – I'm not sure what's going to come of this, to be honest with you. I, I think in the long run, yes, the city's going to have to pay this back. But I think that city does have to, to at least make a stand. Their, their, their finances are not in good shape. Northside Hospital just closed within the last year. So you lose all that income tax revenue. I don't know how many people within the city of Youngstown worked at General Motors, but you're losing tax revenue there. Uh, it's not a good situation for the city. And that is one job I would not want to have as mayor right now. Extremely difficult. It's a city that's facing many, many economic struggles. It doesn't seem to be able to catch a break. So may it surprise you with my, my response there. But I, I think at, at this stage, they need to hold out and see what happens maybe at the state legislature level. So I think that there's – I think you make a good point um, that uh, you know there's nothing wrong with them, the mayor. And it's the mayor's obligation to represent the city. There's nothing wrong with him trying to make a deal with the city of Ohio or not, excuse me, the state of Ohio. And, and to be fair to Mr. To Mayor Brown, it, it didn't occur under his watch. He kind of inherited this problem. You know, his other governance issues aside, this is kind of something that he's received. So I take that point. And, you know, I don't, I, I don't hold it against the city of Youngstown that they're trying to figure out what's going on. They're going to meet with the state. But like I said, you can't get more generous than a 15-year repayment plan of $3.1 million. You just simply can't. And and they're going to – I think it was illegal. I think it was pretty clearly illegal. They were co-mingling funds. They were using it on shady products, uh, projects, and they're going to have to repay the money eventually. Um, And, you know, if they don't have the revenue for it, well, that raises the bigger question of why were you – you know, doing something you shouldn't have done in the first place. You know, the the other point you made, well, you know, they were doing it since 2011 and it's just an issue. Yeah, okay, but it, it took the, the state of Ohio some time to discover the issue. It took the state of Ohio some time to raise the issue, to investigate it, et cetera, et cetera. So just because they haven't done anything since 2011 doesn't mean that it's um, uh, it's it's a bigger, you know, it doesn't mean that the young sound's innocent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we'll see what comes of it. I, I'm I'm curious to see how the mediation continues between the between Keith Faber's office and in the city. City, you know, again, you you bring up a good point. Uh, it's a tough situation for Mayor, Mayor Brown. This did not happen under his watch, and now he's left with this situation of cleaning up. If it ends up something where they're going to have to pay it back, a mess that happened on previous administrations watch and now he's stuck with it when he's trying to institute his agenda now he's going to be hit with having to pay back over the next 15 years this 3.1 million dollars so it is a tough situation uh but i'm not sure what ultimately is going to come of it it's 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 tough insofar as the city believes it has a legal basis and i'm not sure if the auditor is simply saying you don't have a legal basis but then again, it comes to that question. Well, the previous auditor allowed this. Why are you? Why is this an issue now? I'm not sure. Um, you know, <laughs> it's tough. And again, the optics are bad. And I was actually looking while you were talking to see what kind of revenue stream we had coming in on the water, sewer, and sanitation. So just. Just to provide some context, in 2016, 
total revenues from the city sewage, water, and, and sanitation departments were $64 million. That's a substantial amount of money for a city that's struggling. When it comes to their income tax revenue and their normal governmental um, revenues they have coming in for assessments and investments and, and their income taxes for the city, $32 million. So you could see why they're flush with cash, in the, and I'm, I could confirm that here momentarily, but you could see why they did this. They have the funds available out of the these water these these enterprise funds is what they're essentially called why they did it and they wanted to make these projects happen for for me who's a big proponent of Youngstown I love this I love what the that these projects did occur if there's one part of the city that is doing well it's around Youngstown State University and in the downtown there's been a lot of economic development that has occurred which has been nice to see. Obviously, I would like to see private enterprise be footing the bill for all of this. But um, the city opted back in 2011 to use these funds to make it happen. So from that perspective, I'm happy that these projects occurred. It would be unfortunate, though, that they occurred because of something that would have been done illegally. Yeah, Um I mean, look, I, w- I want to see the downtown redeveloped, but I don't want to see the downtown get redeveloped on the back of uh, the working poor uh, who have to struggle to pinch pennies to save money so that some property developer can build a hotel that, that's pretty vacant in downtown. And that, that property developer can also, you know, cheat to do so. So I don't know. I just, I think this is crony capitalism. I think, you know, instead of, at the end of the, the other thing to keep in mind is, the yeah, they're bringing in a lot of revenue for the water system, but there's a lot of money they have to spend to reinvest it. So if you had a proper balance sheet, which took into account depreciation and expected capital expenditures, you know it's arguably that the water system is in the hole because they have to spend a lot to keep it and maintain it. And so they're taking money that they don't have, and they're spending it on development projects, which are pretty and they're nice to look at. But are they really sustainable? Um, could they have been done in other ways? I don't know. Could you have found financing any other way? Hopefully. I mean, the city of Youngstown does a lot of really stupid shit, right? Pardon my language. They also they gave a loan to Terry Vidal, who was an Ursuline alum, who had a, an events entertainment company to move his office from Boardman to the city of Youngstown, like a $200,000 loan. That's dumb. That's completely dumb. They gave him money. They gave him loans movie development companies to film in the city of Youngstown, right? Like, this is this is nonsense. People can't get paid. Basic government employees can't get paid. The police can't get raises. And the city of Youngstown, not content with complete failure in everything that they touch, they also want to play the role of movie producer and uh, event coordinator and all these other functions. It's just, it's sad. It's a tough... That, like I said earlier... That is one job I would not want to have because it is, it's not a good situation for the city. Population continues to decline. It's probably by the next census going to be close to 60,000 for a city at one point in time, I believe was over 150,000 people. And you have an infrastructure that it's not like the land just went away. You have roads that you have to maintain. It's, it's, it's a, it's a tough situation. I would not want that job. Um, and it'll be it'll be something to watch over the months ahead as to what happens 
between the city and the state auditor. Uh, I don't know if you had anything else on that. No, I, I don't. I just, I, I, I guess I, you know, the area is great. There's great people. There's a lot of great things going for it. I don't want to be the negative Nancy, right? And, and shit on the area because I, I really, we have enough of those people who are out here day. <laughs> one of those, I, I really love the area. I think it has a lot of opportunity. I think some of the most intelligent people I've come across live there. Uh, it's got a great culture. It's felt very welcoming. It's got rich food, rich cultural heritage, but the government and the politicians that the area elects have consistently failed this, the people of Youngstown. And it's, it's a damn shame um, because the, the, the misgovernance, on that in that local level, and let's be very clear: a lot of it is due to the local democratic parties. I forget, even if you're a communist, right? There's no reason any rational person should vote for a Mahoning County Dem or a Trumbull County Dem because those two local parties have completely mismanaged this area. And yes, they've been dealt a bad stack of cards, but you know what? So have a lot of areas of the country, and they've managed to rebound or at least stabilize. Youngstown is fading further and further into irrelevance. The decline is only accelerating, and the politicians. I think share a good portion of the blame. Good points. So moving on to the last topic we wanted to mention, it's this idea of school consolidation. So we just talked about the city of Youngstown having plenty of issues itself. Well, those issues aren't just the city of Youngstown. It's really the entire Mahoning Valley. The population of Mahoning and Trumbull continues to decline. I think Trumbull's probably going to be under 200,000 people with the next census, Mahoning County under 230,000. But these are counties at one point in time were over 250 and near 300,000 respectively. So they've, they've shed a lot of population. And with that, you also have to factor in people are having fewer kids now. So you have fewer people and you have the – the, the the smaller population base having fewer kids, there's this issue now of we have too many schools, too many public schools within Mahoning and Trumbull County. So just to put it in perspective, there are 14 public school districts within Mahoning County, and there's 20 in Trumbull County. And Trum- Trumbull County, just for those people who are listening, is a smaller of those two counties. So back in – let's see. When did I write this? December of 2018, I wrote an article – looking at the enrollment from 2010 through 2018 of all of those Mahoning and Trumbull County public schools. And when you look at it combined K through 12 enrollment, there were 65,000 students in 2010 in Mahoning and Trumbull counties in 2018. That number is now 54,000. It went down by 11,000 in just not eight years. So Mahoning County Auditor Ralph Meachin had mentioned to the Vindicator, a Republican who I think is doing a a fantastic job and is cleaning up things. And and he's he's well respected, and I believe he's running for reelection. I think he should win handily, Um, or maybe he he already did run for reelection. I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, But in a meeting with the Vindicator, he said maybe it's time for school districts. To, cons- to at least discuss consolidation. And he had a quote that I thought was really, really good. He said, is it the function here to employ adults or to educate children? Because ultimately, one of the huge pushbacks you're going to get is, well, you're gonna, maybe the teacher unions are going to fight it or, or, or what. We're, by having so many 
public school districts, we are employing a lot of people, but is it worth it when the ultimate goal is providing a quality education to the students? So, um, you know, I, I agree with him. I think this idea of consolidation needs to come up. Just, just to throw some numbers out here, Jackson Milton in 2018 has 718 students, K-12, through Lowville, 524 students, Seabrook, 468 students, Western Reserve, 672 students. So there's four school districts in Mahoning County alone that have fewer than, let's see, 700 students. That's remarkable. Then you go to Trumbull County. It gets even worse up there. There's a school district up in Trumbull County, Bloomfield Mespo Schools. They have 236 students, K through 12 in their system. You got to ask yourself, is it really worth having a full load of teachers and an administration and paying a superintendent's salary to support a school district that has 236 students? So I, I agree with, with Ralph Meachin. It's I think it's time. Maybe it's long overdue to at least discuss, at the very least discuss. It doesn't necessarily need to happen right away. But at least discuss this idea of consolidation of some school districts within Mahoning and Trumbull County. So I agree with you 100%. I think that the abundance of local governments uh, in our area creates an inefficient tax. Cleveland, you can see this very strongly. There's a ton of local governments in Cleveland. And you have a high tax and not good services because – you know, people are spending taxes to employ administrator A, B, C, D for four areas where one guy could easily cover or one lady. Um, so I, I completely agree about consolidation. But here's a couple of issues, right? The Bloomfield thing, I think, is not a good example because Bloomfield is geographically isolated. So, yes, they don't have many students, but because they're so far away from the other areas, you kind of have to run a school district or else people would be going miles and miles. I take that point. The city of Youngstown school should arguably be shut down and the students in Youngstown, be, they should be bused to the neighboring suburban schools. But of course that would never happen in a million years because all the people in the suburban schools would panic and freak out. I mean, look at what happened with Liberty and open enrollment. I mean, if, if we're being very frank here, there's a lot of racial politics and a lot of um, associated issues that come into play when it comes to school districts where you have the largely white suburban areas with their schools and the largely uh, black and minority uh, urban school districts in Youngstown and Warren. So if you, if you were to consolidate, right, just on a pure geographic basis, you'd likely abolish the Youngstown city school system, send those kids to the suburbs. Can you imagine the opposition that would come up if they were to do that? It'd be enormous. It would be enormous, right? I think it's needed the area is needed. I think I'd be in favor of that. You need to consolidate the school systems. The fact that McDonald, Gerard, and Liberty all have school systems when they're so close to each other, it's silly, right? Same with Mineral Ridge. Those those areas are like right next door to each other. They can easily have one or two school systems. But you're going to get so much opposition and pushback that I just don't think it's ever. Yeah, and I agree. It is going to be tough to make it happen. And Point taken about Bloomfield Mespa. A couple of examples because I'm, I have a better idea at least of the ge- geography of Mahoney County. You have Lowville, which is right along the river. It's close to Struthers. It's close to Camel. It's close to Poland. 
it's one of those school districts. Is it worth being open? The one that really I do not understand is out in Western Mahoney County. It's Sebring Schools. Right next to Sebring, literally probably a five-minute drive away is West Branch, their schools. West yeah, Branch – what's that? I never understood that either. Yeah, keep going. That was always a confusing for So West Branch, geographically speaking – and I could be completely wrong about this stat, but I, I remember reading, and it could have been on a high school message board. So if I'm wrong about this, I apologize and somebody could correct me. But West Branch has one of the largest geographic areas of any school district in the entire state of Ohio. It covers a good chunk of southwestern Mahoning County and a good chunk of northwestern Columbiana County. And situated right next to West Branch Schools is Little Sebring, Ohio, that has their own school district, which has a whopping 468 students, whereas West Branch has 2,051 students. So that's one of those things, like, is it really worth having those two schools? In southern Trumbull County, you, you bring up a good point. You have Gerard, McDonald, Mineral Ridge, all very close to each other. You have, and then you even touch on Liberty and Gerard. There are so many school districts so, so close by that I, I, I wish the discussion would come up, but the pushback would be enormous. I wish I had the quote up. I know in response to Ralph Meachin's quote, the superintendent for Canfield Schools was came out pretty adamantly about it and s- simply stating somebody from county government shouldn't be dictating the education of students. Uh, you're going to get that kind of pushback. But common sense, I wish common sense would prevail here. It, it's, it's abundantly clear that at least some of these school districts should at least consider joining some adjoining school districts because again, Louisville right next to those school districts I mentioned to Sebring right next to West Branch. It's a no brainer. Is it really worth low in Louisville has a beautiful complex. They have brand new buildings. It was like, but why it's a school district that has open enrollment that I would have to say lives and dies by it. Why is it still open as a school district? And maybe I'll get some flack for that, but I'm thinking of things from dollar and cents perspective some regionalization wouldn't hurt in the Mahoning Valley, especially with a shrinking population base. I I completely agree with you. I think we definitely need regionalization. We need regionalization of the governments. Um, We need regionalization of the school districts. We need to start sharing services for police and fire. I mean, look, the irony of the Mahoning Valley is it's some of the most high-taxed areas in the state. It's one. I think it is, well, maybe not the highest tax area, but it's one of the highest taxed areas. Um, when you add up the total tax burden of the overall state of Ohio, and yet it has one of the lowest standard of livings. And it's that paradox which is driving people away. And, and look, I think people are willing to pay high taxes if they get something in return. People will pay super high property taxes and sales taxes if they have very nice schools and roads and parks. Okay, So the idea that people only want low-cost, low-tax areas, it's it's true, but it's not true. Right? People are willing to, if I get fewer services but I have lower taxes, I'll take that. If I get more services and I have to pay higher taxes, I might also take that too. But Youngstown combines the worst of both worlds. It has high taxes and really, really poor services. And to me, the only way you can start to deal with that is by consolidation and rationalization and moving to a regional level. 
Um, Trumbull County, same thing. Uh, so I, I completely agree with you. I think you need to start consolidating school districts. But the, the reality of the situation is it's a racial issue. And the suburbs do not want the, the Youngstown students to come into their school districts. I mean, I'm not defending that view. I'm, not, I'm just saying that's, that's what people believe. And that's the big sticking point. And that's why you're going to see all these little school districts all over the place. Um, and, and that's why you'll never see grander consolidation. All good points. And I do think that that racial aspect does play a role in, in it. Um, I think in Mahoning County, the one school district that probably has seen the most impact of open enrollment has been Austin Town, getting a lot of students from – uh, this west side of the city of Youngstown, but Poland, Boardman, Canfield are three school districts um, that to this day still do not have open enrollment. I believe those are the three that three that only, the only three that do not have it in Mahoning County. I could be wrong about that. Maybe Springfield doesn't as well, but I believe every other school district within Mahoning County has open enrollment. Um, and you know, begs the question: Why, why are you not doing it? Borman is a school district that, as of late, has seen a, a, a large drop in enrollment. But Poland seen twenty three percent drop from twenty ten through twenty eighteen. So, you know, it, 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 sooner or later, I think that topic is going to come up. Um, we shall see. I think regionalization is something that. Local governments, local school districts are going to need to look at more closely. I think it was a few years ago, Gerard and Liberty talked about working together with their safety services. And the uproar from that was enormous. And naturally, it didn't go anywhere. But they were talking about working together for a geographic area that Liberty and Gerard are right next to each other. And, you know, again, it made sense. You have 304, you have Tibbetts Wick connecting the two towns in uh, Georgia City, but connecting the two municipalities, and the uproar was just too much, and naturally that idea fizzled out. But um, you know, hopefully, hopefully the people, the decision makers in, in the county, in, in these local governmental roles, see the light at some point, common sense prevail. Uh, or, or maybe there's an uproar from 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 the citizens themselves. I, I live in Boardman Township, and this past May and June were horrible when it comes to stormwater. Uh, my house alone had issues with sewage backup, and there are plenty of parts of Boardman Township that have been hit with lots and lots of flooding. And there's a group on Facebook that I am a member of and the uproar from the people who want to overthrow the, the Boardman township trustees and, and the administrator is through the roof just because they feel as though we have a major problem. The current leadership is not doing anything about it and change needs to happen. So perhaps that sort of citizen um, movement uprising of sorts could be the trigger to make some regionalization happen. Yeah, I'm not optimistic. I think that uh, I'm not optimistic either. I'm hopeful, but <laughs> I think sooner or later it's going to have to. It, the, the discussion is going to have to happen. The, student, the the citizen movement would be against regionalization because they wouldn't want to open up the school districts. Um, to to be completely to 
completely frank. I think you might see some regionalization on the uh, municipal government level before you see the school. Schools will probably be the last domino to fall. You'll probably see cities share their police and fire um, and, and dispatch services before they get to the school district. Um, but that's, that's just my thought. Um, one more thing, you know, our area is getting older. Like, yeah, there are not a lot of baby stores in the area. And you walk around, you know, you're, uh, you have a young family. I have a young family. And you just don't see babies in our area anymore. There, nobody's having children. There's not a lot of young people. It's a, it's an old, it's an aging area. And the young people that do exist, you know, they're having a lot fewer children on a per capita basis. And uh, if you move to some other cities in America, you, you notice the big difference between Youngstown and the rest of the country. Yeah, without question. Um, and it, it goes to that issue. There's where are the jobs. If, if you're going to have a young family and you want to raise your family here, you need to obviously have some sort of career to be able to support your family. And if you go to college and, and you, you get your degree and there's not a, a, a job lined up for you locally, you're going to look elsewhere. Fortunately, I was able to get a, a job with a great firm where I've been since 2013. And I'm very fortunate for that because I'm Mr. Youngstown and I didn't want to go anywhere else. Um, But I know that's not the case for everybody else. I know a lot of people do struggle to find jobs around here. And it's unfortunate because there are a lot of people who would love to stay here locally. And we need that talent. We need that brain, that knowledge of some younger people here. We need some fresh blood. And unfortunately, we're stuck with old school we're, we're stuck with the older generation who who's more unwilling to change and you're stuck with the same people in government who are going to keep making the decisions where we have a lot of people scratching their heads and until you get that new blood in there nothing's really going to change locally and that's unfortunate yep totally agree totally agree so anything else? I I I, I know uh, we want to mention real quick, Ron Verb, talk show personality, talk show host on five seventy WKBN in Youngstown. He lives in Austintown Township, and he's one of those ones. He finally said, "I'm fed up," and he decided he was going to run for trustee uh, in Austintown Township. Ultimately, he it was determined that he wouldn't. He he backed out. Because of that issue with the – is it the equal time rule? What, what's the law? I think it's – I'm not sure, but I know the FCC put a kibosh on that. Yeah, and essentially he would have a talk show from 3 to 6, 3 to 7 every single day. And, and I believe according to that requirement, you'd have to have his competitors have the same amount of equal time. And obviously Clear Channel or iHeart Media is not going to allow that to happen. So – it, he, he determined that he would back out, but he, he's one of those people who just said enough's enough. I want to make something needs to happen. We need some new blood in there. You can't have the same people making the same decisions, a lot of status quo to, to go unchanged. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate he couldn't run. I think he would have had some success because uh, a lot of, a lot of what he has to say resonates. And, um, but I don't, Obviously, you're uh, you're somebody who calls into that program from time to time. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I I don't know. I think I, the big question on my mind. I think it's a, it's a fun little story, right? He obviously is not running, um, but the big question on my mind is if he would have run, uh, would he have won? And I think I tend to think that he would have. 
but I think you've had a very difficult time governing in Austin Town because you're you're a councilman, right, or a trustee because it's trustee. a township. So you're you're one among many. You're, you don't have full executive power, and it would have been it would have been difficult. So maybe it's the best that he didn't uh, he didn't run. Yeah, so there's three trustees within Austin Town, and I believe like Boardman, I could be wrong about this. I, I believe they have a township administrator as well, but ultimately it's the trustees who call the shots. Um, but I guess even if he had one, what's always interesting and sometimes it's good is to have that dialogue. And if he would have won, I think he would have brought some tough discussions to the table and hold some pe- people's feet to the fire and make some people feel uncomfortable. And I think we need a little bit more of that. I think President Trump has has done that. Um, he's not afraid to go after people in his own party. And I think you need that because if you just have the same people and, – and I don't necessarily know the trustees in Austin Town. Um, you know, I have nothing negative to say about them. I'm just saying in general, uh, if you have same people, the same blood in there um, – there's that groupthink mentality and they're just going to go with the flow and have some fresh blood in there. Who's kind of looking at things from the outside. Um, it would have been, I think it would have been really fascinating to see what he would have been able to do and what he would not have been able to do. Uh, cause his hands are tied. And then ultimately when you are a trustee, you you're privy to all the information you're privy to, to state funding and all those sorts of things. And, and maybe he would see that maybe the local municipalities, their hands are tied, or maybe there is gross mismanagement of taxpayer dollars. Um, but it, it's too bad that he he did end up backing out because I think it would have been a, a very interesting race. And just to hear, because he would continue his talk show, just to kind of maybe hear some tidbits of information of how things work in government, and for him to be able to share it, I thought that would have been fascinating. Yeah, that would have been cool. I think it's a it's kind of a missed opportunity, but I think it would have been a really um a really, really uh, a fun thing, but at the end of the day, I think it's probably best for him uh, that it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So, one last thing I wanted to touch on as we conclude this episode, I received an email yesterday um, from somebody, and it's an article written, and I don't, I didn't fact check this article to confirm that this was actually written by this 26 year old college student named Alyssa Algram. Uh, but it's something – it was sent to me in an email, and I thought it would be something that would be good to conclude this episode with, and then we can discuss in our next episode, episode four, because it's something that I think we as some younger, more conservative uh, voters can res- resonate with. And so I figure I'll share this. Um, we'll wrap up this episode, but we could discuss this in the next episode. But I think it, it's something – quite interesting and i i was really fascinated reading it and i just wanted to share it so this was written um the article it's called my generation is blind to the prosperity around us it's written again by a 26 year old college student her name's Alyssa algram she's in grad school for her mba uh it's a short read but i just wanted to share so here here we go so i'm sitting in a small coffee shop near nokomis trying to think of what to write about. I scroll through my newsfeed on my phone, looking at the latest headlines of the Democratic candidates calling for policies to fix the so-called injustices of capitalism. 
I put my coffee or I put my phone down and continue to look around. I see people talking freely, working on their MacBooks, ordering food they get in an instant, seeing cars go by, and it dawned on me. We live in the most privileged time in the most prosperous nation, and we become completely blind to it. Vehicles, food, technology, freedom to associate with whom we choose. These things are so ingrained in our American way of life, we don't give them a second thought. We are so well off here in the United States that our poverty line begins 31 times above the global average. That's 31 times. Virtually no one in the United States is considered poor by global standards. Yet in a time where we can order a product off Amazon with one click and have it at our doorstep the next day, we are very unappreciative, unsatisfied, and ungrateful. So she goes on to say, uh, why then with all the overwhelming evidence around us, evidence that I can see sitting at a coffee shop, do we not view this What's happening in this country is prosperity. We have people who are dying to get into our country, people around the world destitute and truly impoverished. Yet we have a young generation convinced that they've never seen prosperity. And as a result, elect politicians dead set on taking steps towards abolishing capitalism. Why? The answer is this. My generation has only seen prosperity. We have no contrast. We didn't live in the Great Depression or live through two world wars or the Korean War, or Vietnam War. We didn't see the rise and fall of socialism and capitalism. We don't know what it's like to live without the internet, without cars, without smartphones. We don't have a lack of prosperity problem. We have an entitlement problem, an ungratefulness problem, and it's spreading like the plague. So that was something that was sent to me. I shortened it a little bit, but I thought it was kind of fascinating. Again, written by somebody... I'm not sure if 26 anymore is considered a millennial or what generation that is, but it's a good – I wanted to conclude this episode with that just for people to dwell on. It's something that I think at times we are – we do forget how good we have it in this country. I remember from when I went on my honeymoon down in Punta Cana and just to drive from the airport to the drive to the resort just to see miles upon miles of – either nothing in complete darkness or just these shacks along the side of the road. And then when you come to our country, there is this disconnect. I think sometimes we do forget how good we have it here. And unfortunately, we have people in power who like to make it seem like the situation is very dire in our country. So I wanted to leave with that. I don't know if you have any initial thoughts, but I thought this would be a good topic for us to talk about. What's that? I disagree with the central thesis. I, uh, I think this is boomer propaganda, and I'm, I'm going to go in the next episode. You're going to see Dane Davis argue against uh, this view of prosperity and, and, and the millennials and stuff. I, I'm going to take the side of millennials and defend them, and I'm going to say this lady is, is silly. Um, and I'll, I'll explain why in the next episode. You have to tune in. But I think it's boomer propaganda, boomer as in baby boomer. And um, I think that conservatives need to claim the boomer mentality from their ideology in order to win and to become triumphant. But we'll, we'll explore that in the next podcast. Fair enough. I, I, I will admit it wasn't from a boomer. I thought it was interesting, but I'll be of interested. Of course it was. Interested. Of course it was, right? Well, naturally. Now, I, don't t- I would never share some of the nonsense that I receive in, uh, in, in my emails, but I did enjoy this one. But again, I can't fact check if this is even a valid 
article written by a 26-year-old student, but uh, I want to at least share. So I'll be interested. I better just do my own homework and uh, and get ready for the next episode with you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm ready. I'm gonna. This will it'll be spicy. We'll we'll have a debate about millennials versus boomers and uh, what's really going on with the economy and prosperity and stuff like that. Very good. Anything else you have? I just want to say, you know, if you're looking to sleep on a really comfortable mattress, the Casper mattress is really (laughs) – I'm looking to build up my retirement portfolio, and if the Casper Mattress Corporation were to sponsor us, I'd be happy to talk to other people about the wonders of the Casper mattress. You know, since I've been sleeping on one, I'm happier, I'm healthier, I get a better night's sleep, and when I wake up in the morning, I look forward to the start of my new day. All thanks to the Casper mattress. So, Dane Davis, please contact me, Casper mattress. I will, uh, I will show for you, uh, you know, for whatever you want to pay me, uh, and and that's all. And thank you, Michael, as always. Absolutely, and just a reminder for everybody: encourage you to please subscribe to our podcast. You could do it on Apple Podcasts. You could do it on Google Podcasts. If you have any questions, you could email them to us: info at mvred.com. You could shoot us a message on Facebook, on Twitter. And you could also visit our website at mbred.com. But again, Dane, thank you very much for uh, joining us on this uh, our third episode. Who would have thought we would make it this far? But I'm having a lot of fun with it, and I'm getting a lot of great feedback from a lot of people who are tuning in. Uh, and I look forward to episode four, where we'll talk about this article, which I just read, and some other things, the economy, and maybe we'll, we'll – we'll, revert back to some national politics as well. So I want to thank everybody for tuning in and hope everyone has a good rest of the day. I Take care. I live this long. There you go. We'll see you everybody.